from Pacifica Radio in San Francisco. This is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, a federal judge gives Title 42 new life, putting thousands of Haitians and Central Americans at grave risk once again. Also, poet Raymond Knapp Turner remembers the buffalo slaughter name by name. All this coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. This is your daily investigative news magazine. We broadcast to you every weekday from 5 to 6 over the Pacifica Radio Network. I believe we're live today in San Francisco and Los Angeles, and we are happy to have you along. And we are uh, attempting to make connection with our first guest. Uh, I do want to let you know uh, that tomorrow uh, we're going to do a special... Uh, extended interview that uh, Miguel Gabriel Molina did with some important and um, extraordinary activists in the San Francisco Mission District. And there is a lot going on there uh, to be respected. So we want you to um, want to give you a heads up on that. Uh, and if all goes well, coming up later on in this broadcast, uh, uh, we'll be speaking with uh, Raymond Nocturna, who's got a poem to remember name by name those victims in Buffalo. Uh, and, and again, uh, you are listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Uh, I believe we have uh, made contact with Nicole Phillips. Are you there, Nicole? Yes, good evening. Good evening. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, we are... Um, Troubled. We know that uh, you work, uh, you're a legal director with the Haitian Bridge Alliance. Uh, today was not um, a good day for Haitians, Haitians hoping to get a fair hearing uh, for political asylum. In fact, it, um, for some, it could prove fatal. What happened? What's, uh, remind people what Article 42 is and uh, the latest uh, decision that went against the people of Haiti, among other folks. Sure. So Title 42 is uh, part of the Health and Safety Code um, that President Trump, with the help of Stephen Miller, issued in March of 2020 uh, as a measure to close 
the borders, both the Canadian, the border, our northern border with Canada and our, more importantly, our southern border with Mexico. And it was to close it specifically to asylum seekers. And the, the pretext was that asylum seekers or migrants um, could be bringing uh, a contagious disease, a coronavirus, into the United States. Now, scientific experts from around the country have debunked that pretext. But unfortunately, the Biden administration continued on with Trump's Title 42 policy and has continued to keep the U.S.-Mexico border closed to asylum seekers. So what that means is that now when somebody comes to try and seek asylum in the U.S., they are either denied entry or if they cross outside of port of entry, they uh, likely will be deported back to their country without the chance to seek asylum. Now, after pressure, a lot of advocacy, and also thousands of Ukrainian uh, uh, refugees trying to get into the United States, the Biden administration agreed to end Title 42 today on May 23rd. Um, and so we, you know, we weren't sure exactly what the Biden administration would roll out after that, but it certainly was a major victory for uh, you know, two years of advocacy. Um, unfortunately, 20 states, mostly in the South, did not agree with us, and they filed a lawsuit a few weeks ago contesting the ending of Title 42. Um, a TRO had been put in place a few weeks ago by a judge in Louisiana, and the full hearing happened this past Friday where the judge did uh, order that the Biden administration could not um, end Title 42 and that it needed to remain in place. So as you say, this is uh, a huge downfall. Um, this means that you know tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of migrants um, in the future will not be able to uh, seek asylum into the United States. Um, but as you mentioned with Haitians, it, it's a pretty big impact on Haitians because they are uh, deported all the way back to Haiti, uh, with, where many of them face severe security concerns um, and a country that is destabilized, doesn't have a real government um, and is, you know, um, pretty close to, to anarchy. We're speaking with Nicole Phillips. Uh, she's the legal director for the Haitian Bridge Alliance. Now, you were recently in Haiti. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you learned from the trip and uh, what the conditions that these folks are uh, going to be facing? Some are really put on planes and cuffed and forced off the planes in Port-au-Prince. But uh, tell us what you learned on this trip. Sure, yeah, and I'm still in Haiti, and I, I did... Um, oh, you're still... I didn't... Go yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm so, um, so sorry for the phone, so phone connection earlier. Okay. But, um, yeah, no, and so, and I did go to... Um, uh, I met a deportation flight um, of Haitians about two weeks ago and spoke with Haitians who had been deported. There were um, close to about 100 people on that particular flight. It looked like half the people from just what I could see were young children sort of under the age of eight a lot of moms um, and children and when I spoke to them um, they all use the same word abuse 
They said the U.S. government had abused them, the way that they had been treated, that they had been detained in in prisons um, and not allowed to shower, not allowed to bathe, not allowed to brush their teeth, that their children who got fevers, who had diarrhea, um, who weren't fed properly, that they were not allowed to see uh, doctors, um, that they, you know, the adults were chained like they were criminals at their ankles, at their waist, at their at their wrists, um, and sort of shuffled around for hours that nobody was told they were going to be deported before they were. Um, instead, they just, in the middle of the night around, which seems to be the standard practice, around 11 p.m., 12 p.m., 1 a.m., they're put into buses, not told where they're going, and just they realize where they're going when they get to the airport and they see a large uh, airplane, and that's when the most people figure out that they're being deported back to Haiti. So uh, people were angry when I talked to them um, and felt like the United States really had betrayed them, that all they were trying to do was seek asylum, um, that they ha- nobody asked them if they feared going back to the United States. Nobody screened them for asylum. They were just summarily deported back to Haiti. Wow. Wow. Uh, That's the voice of Nicole Phillips. She's talking to us from Haiti. I guess you're in Port-au-Prince now? I am, Um, yes. uh, And uh, that's a very important place for you to be on a day like today uh, when uh, a judge uh, has um, once again put an end to the so-called proposal from the administration to end this uh, 42, but it's not going to end here. What, um, is there a record? Or, or, tell us a little bit more about your work there. Is there a, an attempt to document the kinds of injuries and murders that take place with this kind of violent, forced, um, uh, uh, you know, um, I don't even know what to to call it is essentially you're sort of kidnapped by the United States government and forced back into a situation that could cost you your life. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so, you know, where people are landing at, at the airport in Port-au-Prince in recent weeks, there has been an, an outbreak of gang violence, sort of turf wars between neighborhoods smack dad the airport's in the middle of it and so it becomes extremely dangerous for family members to go and 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 get their their loved ones from this airport um and we've heard of 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 stories of people um you know being robbed um being kidnapped um you know even on their way back from the airport in terms of an analysis it's tricky because when people arrive in the airport they don't have a uh, a WhatsApp number. They don't have a phone number, right? They, they 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 don't have a cell phone. They don't have a phone number. So it's very very difficult first to approach people because they're so angry and traumatized and and just shocked and displaced. Um, but also because they don't have numbers to 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 be able to te- keep in touch with them. And so that ultimately will probably be to the U.S. government's advantage because it's, it's difficult to sort of track the abuses. Um, Human Rights Report did put out, um, excuse me, Human Rights Watch did put out a report about two months ago that was quite good that, that did talk about 
um, a number of people sort of anecdotally after several interviews of, of violence they faced. Um, there, there's one person that we interviewed um, who had been um, attacked and, and almost died and immediately left for Chile. The people that I speak to, they don't leave their, their home. Um, they just, nobody leaves, they can't work, they just don't leave and they their whole goal is to get out of Haiti again. So most people I've spoken to have left Haiti already within a matter of, of days or weeks, they've left Haiti. They've either gone to the Dominican Republic or gone back to Chile or Brazil. They don't feel safe in, in this country and they have been away usually for a number of years, but this isn't, they don't feel like this is their country any longer. And, and the security system, excuse me, the security um, here has gotten so much worse that there's just no desire to be here whatsoever. So, um, um, so people are, are, are pretty desperate to leave, unfortunately. It is the worst combination extreme poverty is extreme violence. Here you've got the physical violence and the synergy of both. Um, and this is the United States government. I'm not going to get into it now, but the politics here uh, and the blame for this suffering originates with the United States government. So this is this is an old story with a new twist. Let me read you this. This is a, a bit of a story coming out of um, El Paso. Uh, this is what the public gets. Um, this is about the uh, this is a quote from a uh, a border patrol spokesperson. He says, "I'm quoting him now. This is before they get rid of the Haitians and force them on the planes. I guess we are treating migrants in the most humane, safe, clean environment possible within the central processing center. We are doing everything possible to treat them with respect while we transfer them out of our custody." That's interesting," said Carlos Rivera. In a detailed email in response to Border Patrol inquiries, the CPB said, CBP said it had engaged in decompression efforts and working closely with community partners receiving migrants eligible to come out of custody. We are increasing CPB processing efficiency and moving deliberately to mitigate potential overcrowding at this. What does this mean to you? What does this gobbledygook mean to you? What does this tell you about the policy? It, it feels uh, like a total clearly, disconnect with the people you're working with and what they're well, feeling. Well, it's an intentional, right? Well, it's an intentional disconnect, isn't it? It's, I mean, it's so outlandish that it's clearly a, a PR job. Um, to, I mean, they're sort of. It's almost as if they're they're negating everything that they know that they do do. Um, and, and and so when we speak to Haitians. Um, and they talk about crying and asking if they're being deported and sent back to Haiti. And people say, no, no, you're going home. Don't worry. And they're being lied to as they're being um, put, you know, driven to the airport. Um, there is one of our a clients that we're representing um, in a case against President Biden for the way that they treated Haitians um, in Del Rio in September of last year. Um, one of them was assaulted by CBP officers on the tarmac as he resisted trying to get on an airplane to go to Haiti. He said, I need to seek asylum. I'm not safe. I can't get on this plane. I will be killed if I get to Haiti. I can't go to Haiti. 
um, and he was tackled um, and um, and beaten by um, immigration officers. So, so this is the reality of of, of how people are being treated. Um, there, there's one woman I spoke to who was in um, a detention facility in CBP custody for 12 days, um, and she was only allowed to shower once. She got a, a vaginal infection. Her child was ill, had diarrhea, had a fever. I mean, they're suffering so much, and this was all in CBP custody. Not to mention there's no Creole translators, so nobody knows what's happening. Nobody can communicate with anybody. It's it's absolute hell. It's hell. You know, I, I, I'm rarely speechless, but every time we talk, and the more that I learn about this process, the more I am thinking about sort of Nazi-like behavior, uh, particularly when it comes to the Haitians. And just to put it in some context, how, how would you sort of compare and contrast, if you will, the treatment of Ukrainians versus the treatment of Haitians? Well, um, when Ukrainians started coming to the border in March, the U.S.-Mexico border. They were coming in Tijuana in March, early March. Um, and that's when the Biden administration had a problem on their hands because they had no problem with Title 42 keeping the border closed to asylum seekers um, when they were black and brown. But when we had white refugees trying to enter the United States, it was then that the Biden administration decided to end Title 42 because they wanted to let in Ukrainians and ultimately oh. they uh, allowed 100,000 they're allowing, they're doing a quota of up to 100,000 Ukrainians that can seek humanitarian protection and come into the United States as they should but the danger facing Ukrainians is often similar to the danger facing many Haitians and so at the very least we're just asking for them to be able to well, not be abused in detention um, but also uh, the ability to seek um, asylum protection in a fair, non-racist um, environment. Well, well, uh, listen, sorry, I didn't realize you were still in Haiti, um, but uh, I'm glad that we could speak to you there uh, and that somebody, um, that you working with the uh, Haitian Bridge Alliance is there, uh, to take some notes and uh, tell the world what's going on. It really is one of the worst human rights nightmare I have um, sort of reported on and witnessed, been witnessed to at various levels in a long time. Um, where does this go next? Is this just uh, with the with the um, f continuing forty two? That doesn't uh, bode well. Uh, and this suffering is essentially going to go on and on and on. I, I, yeah, I don't want to be that, sound hopeless here, but where are we in this, uh, right? We've had this discussion. You've been on this a long time. We've been covering Haiti on Flashpoints a long time. And it always seems that as brutal as U.S. foreign policy is, Haitians get the worst. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean... In so, you know, what we're trying to do at Haitian Bridge Alliance is just, you know, information is power. And we're trying to, we're putting out Know Your Rights videos in Haitian Creole. And we're, we're trying to allow Haitian migrants to understand what's happening so that they are not 
sort of jumping into the river unknown that they're not crossing the border without papers without documents and, and getting deported we're, you know we're doing as much as we can for trying to provide humanitarian services connect people with humanitarian services etc um you know i mean i think the hope is that um you know haitian migrants they themselves have hope um and and they themselves want a better life and and so we all have to put our heads together and do what we can to try and give them an opportunity to be able to send their kids to school in security to to be able to have that that better life um that we're doing and you know one thing to mention for your your listeners i think will interest them is the new york times this past weekend put out an excellent expose on the independence debt um, that france levied against haiti back in 1820s or so um and it's just a great. I, I recommend your 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 audience. It, your it's listeners. sort of they've been putting the mafia squeeze on the poorest people in the world forever. France has been squeezing Haiti, right? That's what this is about. That's right. And so long before the United States, which of course took part in that and refused any trade until France, you know, Haiti agreed to pay this independence debt to France. But, but when you look at what are the causes of Haiti's poverty today, what are the causes of this unstable government today? And yes, it is the U.S. meddling in the last several decades, but it goes even further back to just the creation of the independent Republic of Haiti, which had, you know, it's two of its hands were tied behind its backs and its legs were tied. It's basically the chains that I mentioned, the the handcuffs that I mentioned that Haitians are in now when they're deported along their ankles and wrists and 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 waste that's what happened to haiti back in the 1820s as they were supposed to start their country and so because there wasn't that investment because they were spending so much money in this independence debt haiti was never allowed was never able to get off the ground um and so it's just it's a fantastic things that we've known we've you know many of us have known about it but for it to show up with excellent reporting and journalism from the new york times it's it's an outstanding piece Great. Well, thank you for telling us about that. And thank you for um, doing the work that you do. Are you safe? Do you stay safe? Are you worried? Do you have um, support at that level? You know, when I, I lived here Haiti? for eight years. Yeah, I lived here for eight years and I had my own car and I drove around everywhere. And now when I come, I am fearful. And I had today, I went, I did a TV interview today. Um, and I had two police inspectors that I hired with guns to drive me to my TV interview. So it's a very different environment. Security situation has spiraled out of control since I lived here and when I left in 2018. Wow. Okay. Nicole Phillips, thank you for, for this uh, interview and for all the time you've spent with us. Uh, the people here at Pacifica appreciate the work you're doing. So please stay safe and... Uh, Please talk to us again soon, all right? Thank you, Dennis. I oh, if so people want to if people want to know more, I'm sorry, if people want to know more, they want to get involved, maybe they want to support you in various ways, the Haitian Bridge Alliance, what's the best way for them to do that? I'm sorry. Thank you. Yeah, definitely follow us on Facebook, uh, Instagram and, and Twitter. We're uh, you know, at sign Haitian Bridge. That's a really good way to get involved with our work. You can follow me at um, Buddhist Lawyer, and um, uh, and th- there's always things to sign on our on our social media. But we would love love um, 
you know, people to follow us and, and retweet us and engage with us, talk to us on social media. Tell us how you feel about things. Well, good work. Thank you for being with us on Flashpoint. Stay safe. Thank you. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're going to take a short break. We're going to come back with Raymond Nat Turner, if all goes well. Our KPA is sort of a poet laureate of our time. And he's been thinking about the folks in Buffalo and remembering them name by name. Stay with us. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. This is your daily investigative news magazine. We're going to investigate now with um, Buffalo uh, with our one of our favorite poets, Raymond Nat Turner, who's been thinking about Buffalo and writing about Buffalo. We should all be thinking about what happened and uh, the dangers that we all face now as uh, there is a broadening, widening white supremacist movement backed up by corporate uh, right-wingers that is sort of not looking good for a peaceful future for this country. And it certainly was demonstrated, our two-gun society was demonstrated in the recent attacks, the racist, murderous, white supremacist attacks in Buffalo. Raymond Nat Turner, welcome. Hey, Dennis. Uh, good to be with you again. Well, it's always good to be with you. And it's always good to know that there's a, a wonderful poet who's uh, taking names and making notes and making sure to remember. That's you. We appreciate uh, the piece that you wrote. Uh, for Thank those you. folks. And you want to say a little bit about it before you read for us? Sure. Um, uh, the only thing you gave me, you give me far too much credit. You said I had name by name. I, I wish I had that capacity, but uh, I 
as I always like to say, I'm trying and I'm training, and I spell my training T capital T R A N E I N apostrophe. So, in any case, um, it was it was just mind boggling um, how this act was laid out, and and clearly in my mind, it's it's not. Uh, the act of some lone wolf as they always portray it you know it's like it's it's very uh a sophisticated operation and planning that went into this and and oftentimes um you know i'm sure you of course and many of your listeners know about the mk ultra program and all the other Mind control, mind control stuff. Uh, yes. Yeah, that the agency and uh, other state organs uh, carry out, and oftentimes they have these individuals under their sway and under their control, and they unleash them. And I think, you know, I I, I think of them as uh, appendages of the state apparatus itself. You know, it's like. Um, the thing I think one of the things that was heartbreaking to me was to see uh, the people of Buffalo mourning and grieving, and then the market is surrounded by a bunch of Euro-American, or should we say, white cops? You know, just walking around, uh, you know, uh, as they own the world, and um, yeah. there, you know, there really, there's really no compassion there. There's really no sympathy, and it's almost as if they're gloating and they could care less. And they would, you know, as 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 we saw in uh, Kenosha when the young officer prodigy killed those two people, you know. Uh, you need water, you know, okay, go on and go home, you know, and that kind of thing. Or right. Dylan Roof was taken to Burger King, you know, that kind of um, connection between law enforcement and uh, the, the uh, right. Wow. Well, listen, uh, read to us. I just want to tell you, I'm reminded when you say, you know, you can't get all the names in. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's a song, uh, the Reuben James, the good Reuben James by Pete Seeger. And he talked about writing that song, and it was a ship that went down. And he was trying to write a song and include all the names. <laughs> wow. So what he came up with was something like, the what, what, what were their names? What were their names? The good human sailors of the Reuben James or something like that. So he took care mm-hmm. of it all in one swipe. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that's uh, we would yeah, <laughs> we yeah. we would love to hear your poem. Sure. Um it's called uh, Boots on the Ground in Buffalo. One. He was happy to head east picking up the birthday boy's cake at Tops. Wasn't Halloween? Was it Hollywood? White boy, long gun, body armor, camera on helmet, horrible, hateful eyes, black side of town? Last questions before Bushmaster's barrel, pop, 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 flashing false consciousness, fiery hate, ripping hot into his happy head, leaving burgundy brain tissue 
on the store floor. Family and friends gathered to sing happy birthday to the birthday boy will never ever celebrate birthdays in the same way. False consciousness flooded their home with tears too. Mass shooting of the week, old schmo to Buffalo, star-spangled chest puffed out, locked and loaded with semi-automatic shrink wrap words, high-capacity magazine, 30 rounds of thoughts and prayers, heavy hearts, burst of dim double-speak sprayed at Buffalo's morning masses, nearly misfiring, babbling, bill-back-betterisms. Oh, schmo to Buffalo, Watson to Sherlock-like. Lone gunman armed with weapon of war. It's a hate crime. A hate crime. White supremacy is a poison. A poison. Not Nazi venom saturating settler colonial confederacy soil. Not gunpowder-driven real estate deals with the indigenous peoples. Not unpaid labor extracted from enslaved Africans teaching CRT, Charlottesville-style racist terrorism. Wild boar storming Capitalist Hill January 6th, officer prodigy walking in Wisconsin spawning Kenosha copycats, the slow-walking, wrist-slapping, A.G. acting as boss tweet straight man in Teflon Don skits. Mass shooting of the week. Old Schmo to Buffalo. Healing housing Scrooge. Swiftly shipped billions in weapons. Crowed about recipients naming children after Raytheon, Lockheed, Martin, Northrick, Northrop. Grumman products. If only the young man had driven 7,000 miles instead of 300, poisons cool in Kabul, Baghdad, Khartoum, Mogadishu, Tripoli. He'd hear, thank you for your service, boarding aircraft before babysitters, teachers, nurses, and food workers, or have handcuffs Glock, taser, baton, badge, pension, and impunity. Mass shooting of the week. Oh, schmo to Buffalo. No caravan of Brinks trucks for the ten teary burials, bills, house and car notes, rent, tuition, student debt, for inflationary food and fuel, for forever generational repair. Today, they say, pray for Buffalo's victims and their families. Mm. Raymond Nat Nat Turner reading his new poem. Uh, documenting the suffering and 
Buffalo contextualizing the suffering. It is, it is immense. The racism in this country, I don't have to tell you, is uh, Trump sort of opened up a certain door uh, that that um, sort of freed all the the neos and the crazies to sort of say it out loud. And I think Buffalo was just the beginning of we're gonna of what we're gonna be facing. Uh, we're gonna see an expanding violence like we have never seen before. Well, certain people have seen it in certain contexts, but um, it's going to be a tough time. Are you concerned? Yeah, very uh, much so. I, and I think uh, you know January sixth was an indicator of that. And I don't think you know. I I, I mean. All this slow walking and wrist slapping that's going on with the uh, attorney general, um, you know, the, the thing that was very clear to me, just the way that whole thing played out, those were a whole bunch of soldiers and a whole bunch of cops involved in January 6th. And they, of course, got a pass and went back to their departments and, you know, their there to carry out the acts that they typically have been carrying out in uh, black and brown and uh, indigenous communities uh, forever. And so my, my big concern is that the people are not prepared as we need to be, you know, we're, we're behind the beat. However, um, history is taught that the people can catch up very quickly. And I'm heartened by reflecting back to what I call the George Floyd summer, when you saw all the people out in the streets of various nationalities, ages, sexual orientations, and political persuasions. And so we have the numbers, clearly, without a doubt, but what we need is the organization to uh, match those numbers and and the and the consciousness because, you know, continuing to uh, rely on Lady Blue as I call her, the first black vice president and old schmo and the drone ranger and slick Willie and fancy Chancy Nancy and the all the Dems. You know, it's, it's it hasn't um, paid off for us, you know, and and, and in fact, I would argue that it's put us in a um, deep hole, and so we have to really start regrouping and organizing ourselves. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, I I lost you for a second here. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, that's what it's. Uh, well, it's, it's about staying with it, standing up, speaking out. Yeah, uh, it's and, I wanted to, to, and I wanted to say, you know, I really appreciate what you're doing, particularly with uh, Greg Palace, you know, talking about how uh, uh, the you know voting rights are being uh, stolen. Oh, yeah. we, got, well, we got a lot more on that, and I should tell you that Greg is in Georgia right now doing some very interesting stuff and we're going to have some stuff coming up uh, that everybody doesn't want to miss. We're going to have to leave it right there. Thank Great. you for the beautiful poetry and for the reflection. Seriously. Okay. Thanks a lot. Uh, it's Take appreciated. Care. Keep up the good work. Take care.
Take care. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Uh, for uh, We're going to play Christine Hung from Friday for some of you, and others are going to hear me and Miguel. Stay with us. We are happy to have you along today, and well, we're gonna we're gonna get to ethnic studies, but we're gonna start in South Korea. And joining us uh, to talk about both those crucial issues is Dr. Christine Hung. She teaches at the University of Santa Cruz. She is uh, deeply engaged in their ethnic studies program. We're gonna talk about that in a moment. But uh, Dr. Hung, the president, was in South Korea, uh, and he he actually. Uh, the president uh, was sort of his third stop. The first thing he did is he he ran from the plane to this sprawling superconductor factory uh, that uh, apparently he considers, or the New York Times considers his uh, Biden's vision for the uh, 20th century struggle for influence in the region. What do you make of Biden's trip in U.S. policy? Well, you know, it's interesting how um, a lot of the media coverage has focused on the fact that, you know, Biden is succeeding Obama, you know, in many ways within the region, yet the landscape is fundamentally shifted. And it is shifted and it isn't. You know, so on the one hand, this appearance at the Samsung factory, you know, is you know, also a kind of message that has to be understood as being part of our late pandemic moment. You know, it's an assurance about supply chains. It's, you know, an assurance also about, you know, collaborating with historic U.S. allies, but nowhere mentioning the fact that what undergirds that um, that alliance is um, a militarized, very unequal relationship. And so, you know, I mean, this is... It, you know, it's we've had conversations before, and maybe your listeners will recall that under Barack Obama, there was a militarized pivot and the Trans-Pacific Partnership toward Asia and the Pacific. And Hillary Clinton sort of notoriously stated that rather than draw down U.S. forces around the globe, um, you know, as supposedly the war on terror was winding down, that instead there would be a reconcentration of U.S. military might in its historic arena during the Cold War of hot wars, you know, namely Asia. Um, And so, you know, you could see that what happened with Obama was that Obama um, very seamlessly aligned um, U.S you know, foreign policy with a number of neocons within the region. And here you see with, um, you know, Joe Biden and Yoon suk yeol another kind of alignment between, you know, Democratic, um, you know, party president and then, you know, a neocon in Asia. So, of course, um, the North Koreans were not taking this one sitting down, and uh, they definitely wanted to get some attention and make a statement. Uh, you, you think there's any chance? I mean, the, the reality sandwich is that the United States has military bases all over the world, and it's involved in scores of wars, and China keeps building cities. But U.S. administrations keep accusing China 
of being dangerous and warmongering. You, you want to untangle this a little bit? Yeah, you know, I mean, this is, it, it, it's, it's such an, um, th- this is where you realize that in terms of the long historical view, there has been something so unyielding and unrelenting about U.S. foreign policy. U.S. Cold War, hot war policy within Asia throughout the Cold War was basically aimed at an encirclement of China. And in the post-Cold War period, you've also seen that, and, and that is no different. Now, with regard to Korea in particular, North Korea has played a very particular role with regard to an anti-China U.S. policy that is profoundly militarized. And, you know, we have to ask this question. I mean, my goodness, you know, aren't there other ways of thinking through um, a sane, you know, sort of budgetary allocation other than this kind of militarized, you know, sort of retrenchment of U.S. foreign policy? And, you know, I mean, this is the thing that sort of drives, I think, people to despondency is the duration of the struggle and the fact that, in terms of you know the U.S. Um, in terms of U.S. foreign policy, almost regardless of who's in office, um, there is no serious visionary change. You know, and so here again, you know, you this is not a visionary policy that Biden is is pursuing. There's nothing about this that. Um, brings joy to the hearts of, you know, let alone North Koreans who have been, you know, within the crosshairs of the U.S. war machine for the, you know, entirety of North Korea's existence. And, you know, U.S. military generals would crow about the fact that they wiped out at least 20 percent of North Korea's population. You know, um, leave that aside, you know, in terms of the South Korea, which is a historic ally of the United States. You know, the Obama era and, you know, Biden is so closely associated with that foreign policy. It's associated in the minds of countless South Koreans with the militarization of places like Jeju Island. You know, the militarization of Songju, where Thad was deployed. And this is true also for, you know, other peoples within the region. You know, the Chamorro people of Guam and, you know, and... and Basically, what has happened is that the sort of logic is that um, the United States has really used Korea sacrificially in terms of its, you know, current uh, containment policy of China. Well, this um, and that point is a perfect sort of way to circle around to talk to you about uh, ethnic studies and about uh, the importance of ethnic studies. I was reading um, a wonderful statement that you put together, uh, uh, Dr. Hung, uh, with other folks across the system, the UC system, standing up for uh, ethnic studies. And you, you, you remind us uh, in this statement that the struggle for ethnic studies was crucial and came uh, out of a long heart uh, fight for human rights and for uh, uh, courses that were relevant uh, back in 1968 and all the way through. So tell us where this struggle is now. It seems like the UC system uh, at the last minute is turning its back on a lot of good work and the prospective uh, ethnic studies program that you worked on with others. Yeah, 
Yes, you're absolutely right. You very succinctly uh, framed the issue. And, you know, um, those of us who are in the greater Bay Area understand the historical significance of this region to the inception of the field that we refer to as ethnic studies. And so, you know, back in the late 1960s, you know, um, students first at SF State and then at UC Berkeley went on strike, shutting down their respective campuses. There's so much that could be said about this. And there are lots of, you know, uh, Third World Liberation Front strikes um, veterans of both SF State and Berkeley who can speak to the nature of that struggle. But at SF State, it was a struggle that lasted five months. They shut down their campus for five months. <clears throat> at UC Berkeley, students shut down their campus for three months. And, you know, this was not taken lightly. I mean, the students weren't just calling for the democratization of their education in terms of um, a transformation of the demographics of the student body, I mean, you know, who was actually admitted into these universities. It was also ethnic studies or, you know, the, the sort of third worldist movement was a strike on the curriculum of these schools. And so, you know, if you think about um, the way that the university curriculum is structured, there are fields that come from a kind of classical model of like Western civilization. You know, those kinds of fields we're all familiar with. There's philosophy, there's history, etc. But then there's also fields that um, were subsidized by, for example, robber baron capital, you know, and so there, there's certain fields and disciplines within the university that correspond to that. In contrast to all of these different fields, ethnic studies was a grassroots uh, field that emerged out of students of color um, going on strike at these major public universities. And this was viewed as so threatening. And so ethnic studies, I want to you know, just emphasize, has always been a struggle. This was viewed as so threatening that what did the SF State administration do in the late 1960s? It deployed um, what was colloquially referred to as a ghetto-busting squad of the SFPD to go bust some heads. And in fact, if you look at some of the archival documents from that time, you could see that there is this entire list of injuries that were sustained by protesters, broken bones, head wounds, etc. And then this over um, at UC Berkeley, then Governor Ronald Reagan deployed the National Guard. And you could see this like deployment of U.S. war power and police power all during a window when the United States was fighting a war, an asymmetrical war of counterinsurgency in Vietnam. And in fact, you know, with regard to that SFPD, you know, tactical unit, they were using counterinsurgency techniques that were drawn from the U.S. theater of war in Vietnam against students in the Bay Area, but this marked the inauguration of ethnic studies as a field. So that the field of ethnic studies is now over half a century old. And what the UC, um, you know, the University of California did was um, it was anticipating that Governor Newsom was going to pass some kind of 
um, law, and it, you know, Governor Newsom signed into law AB 101, which authorized the teaching of ethnic studies at the K through 12, but really the high school level, you know, at public high schools throughout the state of California. Anticipating that that would be the case, the University of California, um, through this uh, committee called the Board on Admissions and Relations with Schools, BORS, um, basically pulled together a group of 20 ethnic studies specialists from throughout, you know, um, the UC system. So pulling them principally from the nine campuses. And um, they pulled together people who were from departments of ethnic studies um, from sub-disciplines, departments of black studies or African-American studies, you know, all these different sort of sub-disciplines within ethnic studies, but also from schools of education. So it, you know, they had the foresight to bring together teacher practitioners and scholars, including teacher practitioners in sites like San Diego, in sites like um, Los Angeles, that have already been rolling out ethnic studies at the district level. And so it was a very sort of inspired um, convergence of different um, types of people who had long um, commitments to ethnic studies as a field. And what we did was we pulled together course criteria for an A through G. So A through G is a kind of um, shorthand for these requirements that the University of California has that high school students who want to matriculate into the UC system must take at the high school level. And there are A through G requirements for math, for history, for um, English, literature, etc. And, you know, so basically what the UC had the foresight to do back in 20, late 2020 was to pass um, the requirement for ethnic studies as an additional A through G um, requirement. It would be an H requirement, but it wouldn't be additional. It could be sort of um, partially covered by other sort of areas um, like history, um, literature, maybe even the sciences. And so they pulled us together and we developed a two-page course criteria and what happened was um, this was going through the approval process. Um, this group that pulled this together um, took this draft through multiple rounds of revision. Well, lo and behold, we're in an era in which there is so much racist reaction. And indeed, even in this Boers committee, what we and the, the ethnic studies scholars that pulled this together were told was that they were fearful of Fox News getting a hold of what was going on and running with this, you know, in this sort of crazy anti-CRT moment. And that's a totally manufactured controversy, by the way. We could talk about that if you're interested, but... You know, this internalization of fear was so intense that despite all of the UC campuses largely coming forward and stating, hey, we support um, this course criteria, we recommend some changes, we have some concerns about implementation, these need to be addressed, it was largely positive. But what has happened is um, boards got spooked. And they have proposed to replace an A through G um, requirement in ethnic studies with a diversity, equity, and inclusion slash social justice requirement. 
Now, DEI is corporate speak. It is corporate speak for the management of diversity in institutionalized settings. It does not correspond to a curriculum. So rather than serve the students who go into the University of California or the students throughout the state, um, you know, and these are students, this is finally a moment in which a field that was grassroots and in inception, that was largely articulated at the university level, and that stands, the, you know, like, that, that has the opportunity to actually be realized at the high school level. And indeed, we have a, a California state law that says that it must be so. Did you see, rather than like um, proceeding with clarity and courage, has gotten spooked? And then is suggesting that, no, you know, rather than um, carry this uh, curriculum forward, why don't we expand it to DEI social justice? And this will not do anyone any good. And I want to also mention that, the you know, there's all this sort of talk about, like, replacement, white, you know, uh, the great replacement theory. And, you know, California is looked at as a kind of dystopia. Why? Because since 2020... California has been, in terms of demographics, majority minority. And any attempt to transform the curriculum to truly democratically serve the population of California is viewed as, um, you know, a kind of, you know, thrust into the heart of a kind of white nationalist, you know, make America great again, um, you know, sort of agenda. But, you know, I mean, there, there are other issues too, you know, and, and we can talk about that. And one is that this curriculum has been charged with being anti-Semitic and ethnic studies has been painted as anti-Semitic rather than a curriculum that at its core has historically been, as you can tell from its late 1960s inception, as, you know, it was born in part out of critique of the U.S. war in Vietnam. And so the politics of ethnic studies have always been anti-imperialist. And that wraps it up for another episode of Flashpoints. Our executive producer is Dennis Bernstein. Senior producers are Miguel Gavilan Molina and Kevin Pina. Technical director is Mike Biggs. For previous episodes, go to kpfa.org or flashpoints.net. For questions or comments, email dennis at kpfa.org. Thank you for listening.